If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got the latest episode in our Bayer Tapestry series, presented by David Musgrove. Welcome back to History Extra's Unravelling the Bayer Tapestry series. This is episode four, What's Missing from the Tapestry? I'm David Musgrove, Content Director for BBC History Magazine and History Extra. When news broke in 2018 that the Bayer Tapestry was going to be loaned to the UK from its permanent home in Bayer, I set to work about writing a book all about it, along with Professor Michael Lewis, who is the head of the Portable Antiquities Scheme at the British Museum, a tapestry expert and member of its scientific committee. That book is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021 and is called The Story of the Bayer Tapestry unravelling the Norman conquest. In this five-part podcast series, I've invited tapestry and 11th century history experts to join Professor Lewis and I to discuss uh, the ins and outs of the tapestry and the way that we should understand it today. This episode, we're considering what's missing from the tapestry, which, as you'll find out, is quite a lot. And it's the omissions that actually tell us a good deal about the motives of the tapestry designers, the likely intended audience, and about life in the 11th century generally too. I'm joined for this episode by Professor Tom Lysons, who is Professor of Medieval History at the University of East Anglia, and author of a recent excellent biography of King Edward the Confessor called Edward the Confessor, Last of the Royal Blood. Plus, we're joined by Dr Emily Ward of University College London, an expert on childhood and child kingship in the early Middle Ages, and co-editor with Professor Laura Ash of a recent volume of essays called Conquests in 11th Century England, 1016-1066. Now, most scholars of the tapestry would agree that there isn't likely to be much missing from the start of the tapestry, with its opening scene of King Edward the Confessor in conversation with Harold Godwinson. However, at the other end of the tapestry, there is certainly a good case to be made for the depredations of time and handling having meant that we have lost its original ending. I asked our panel what they thought might originally have been the tapestry's closing scenes. First to speak and give his view is Professor Tom Lysons. One recreation or suggested recreation I've seen is of the tapestry ending with the coronation of William the Conqueror at Christmas in London. And that would turn it into a story about the turnaround of kings, starting with Edward the Confessor, going, of course, through the rise of Harold and then the fall of Harold, and eventually uh, William being crowned at the end. So the whole thing potentially becomes a story of the turnaround of kingship, uh, according to that, uh, that reconstruction. What do you think, Michael? Do you share that view? That's that's a, a fairly well-established sort of view, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, I would sort of go for something similar. I guess what is interesting is what might be between the end of the kind of Battle of Hastings and then kind of leads up to that. Because obviously, um, as people who've kind of recreated the Bayer Tapestry, um, you know, they kind of imagine all sorts of things that could have happened after the Battle of Hastings that aren't shown um, in the Bayer Tapestry. But as we'll talk about today... Um, there's obviously lots of parts of the tapestry that aren't in there anyway. I mean, another suggestion, of course, which is, is some people say, 
um, which I don't, I don't necessarily go for myself, is that it was never finished, that what we have now is pretty much the kind of end of the tapestry. Um, and one of my students um, said to me the other day, which is quite interesting, is, you know, they're doing this Game of Thrones um, sort of tapestry at the moment. Um, and they were religiously kind of updating it and updating it and updating it. I think they sort of still are. But because everybody was a bit disappointed with how the series ends, there's this bit like, well, do we care what happens at the end of the Game of Thrones tapestry? So maybe maybe it's the same thing with the Bear tapestry. Who knows? Uh, Emily, do, do you have any um, sparkling observations on how the tapestry uh, might have ended or, or might not have ended? No, I think I'm largely persuaded by the fact that it probably did end with the coronation scene. Um, and I think um, the most interesting thing for what might happen from my perspective in between is whether we get any mention of what's happening in London at this point. Um, so this is a key scene that appears in some of the other sources um, from around the time. Um, and obviously is a very important one for what's happening with uh, Edgar Etheling and his support. Um, but we just don't know whether that would have appeared on the original tapestry. And we don't know how that would have represented that scene. And it's very unlikely, I think, that Edgar would have appeared himself. Um, but it would have been quite a key point of sort of triumphal entry into London to kind of precede the coronation. So that would have been, for me, an interesting scene if it still was there. Um, but obviously, at the minute, it's all kind of uh, hypothetical imaginings of what might have might have come there. Um, yeah. Uh, let's come back to that in, in a bit, because um, I think, it, let's just go back to the start of the tapestry again. One of the other things that, that we don't get at all in the tapestry is uh, is dates. It doesn't tell us anything about when things are supposed to happen. We're supposed to just follow the narrative. So we assume that it starts in 1064 with this, with this conversation between um, uh, King Edward and Harold. Um, do you think it's at all surprising that uh, that dates aren't aren't given in in a document like? Is it something that we ought to that's that's worthy of comment or note? I mean, I think it depends what you see the purpose of the tapestry as being. Um, I don't think it's surprising that dates are there. Um, it's very clearly presenting a, a visual account. Um, the dates themselves might not have been quite as important. Um, it's obviously a snapshot in time as well. So we're just seeing, like you said, these sort of key months. Uh, really from 1064 slash 5 um, and all the way through. So it's really at most two years, possibly as few as sort of uh, 15 or so months that are, that are being displayed on this tapestry. Um, so I, I don't think that it's surprising that the dates aren't included. Um, it's not trying to present itself as an analytic form of history, which is where we would obviously expect the years to come, uh, you know, what happened in 1066 and what happened in 1067. Um but even in the analytic form of writing, you often get entire years that don't appear in some of the Anglo-Saxon chronicles, for example. Um, so, no, I wouldn't say it's surprising it doesn't appear on the visual form. And I would say that the visual form is perhaps the reason that it doesn't. Hmm. What, what do you think, Tom? Yes, I, I'd certainly agree with all that. I mean, um, all the images, uh, sort of picture stories we have from that period, whether they're church wall paintings or, or embroideries like this one, don't don't have dates on them. Um, m many of them won't have any any guiding words to explain the action on them. Uh, so dates wouldn't have been important. I think what's important is the story that's being told. Um, and on one level, that's a very specific story that occurred at a certain point in time, perhaps in the fairly recent past. But it's also a timeless story uh, with, with timeless morals and timeless messages, uh, some of which are elucidated in, in the margins by the use of characters from Aesop's fables. Um, so uh, we, we, can pick, we can almost uh, pitch this, this story outside time if we want to and appreciate it on that level too. Um, yeah, I think there's an interesting point to put 
um, sort of in relation to what Tom's just saying about the point where it most clearly plays with time, which is the shifting of that deathbed scene and the uh, funeral of Edward, where it puts the funeral procession first and then the deathbed scene afterwards. So there is clearly some playing with time that's happening there. Um, so yeah, I think that buys into sort of this argument that actually it's it's almost outside of time and it's able to do that because of the visuality of the source. Yes, absolutely, and there's, it, I mean, the lack of dates does allow for that uh, that sort of that time time leap to happen. Um, Michael, any, any observations on on dates or, or lack? Um, well, I go with Tom in terms of um, his inference that it'd be more it'd be more surprising in a funny sort of way to see dates on it than than not actually. But um, one thing that some people have talked about, of course, is the kind of agricultural scenes that are in the in some of the parts of the tapestry and the lower borders. Um, which may suggest to some people that it, you know, it kind of infers that this is at a particular time of year. I mean, I don't think that is really the case, actually. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, it is kind of interesting that you do have those moments and, and why, why they're there. Um, and as already been said, you know, this kind of back and forth in time is quite an interesting thing. I'm not sure we'll talk about the Alfkiva scene or not, but um, um, I mean, that, again, people have talked about that being a kind of flashback, perhaps, or something that actually happened in time. So again, it sort of depends on your interpretation of the tapestry, whether you're seeing things um, in a real time or not anyway, uh, in certain parts. Yeah, and the Alfgiva scene, we, we've sort of mentioned that in passing in the uh, in this uh, series so far. Um, this is the kind of the, the, the very enigmatic bit where there's a, a woman uh, having some sort of altercation with a with a clerical figure. Some people have argued that there's the, the architecture suggests there's some sort of portals that put it uh, in a different place and time entirely. Let's let's talk a little bit about um, the stuff that really isn't in the tapestry there, because I think that's that is absolutely fascinating and, and uh, Emily you've already sort of pointed us up in, in that direction so um, I'm not going to go over the whole narrative of the tapestry again I did that in the in the last episode so our listeners know uh, <laughs> yes Michael I did it at great length um, uh, uh, our listeners know um, know what's what what it's saying but what it doesn't say is is very interesting is it so it's telling one story it's telling the story of the of the clash basically the run-up to the clash between two men uh William and Harold with with Edward the confessor as kind of this this figure in the background um uh, there are other bits to that story but it misses out some really interesting uh elements so um let, let me stop talking and Tom what do you, what do you think are the most interesting bits the tapestry uh, excludes from a political sense well, we have to see the tapestry as a south of the channel perspective, strong Brit Brittany sort of angle uh, in there. Uh, it leaves out northern events. So it leaves out the invasion of Harald Hardrada, accompanied by Tosti, uh, only, of course, a month or so um, before, or less than a month before the Battle of Hastings. Um, it, uh, and that's a crucial element of the of the 1066 story. So, so the tapestry is telling the story of Harold and William. It's focusing on that that conflict between those two, uh, and it's leaving out other key players, really important players, uh, without whom we can't understand what's going on. Let me just drop in a quick interjection here to remind you that what Tom is talking about here is the separate invasion attempt on King Harold II's kingdom in 1066. It came from the north with the Norwegian king. Harold Hardrada, leading an army alongside Harold's own estranged brother, Tostig, who had been exiled from England after rebellion in his earldom of Northumbria. 
Tostig had felt betrayed by his brother Harold in not supporting him against the rebellion and spent the early part of 1066 trying to recover his place in England, culminating in his joint invasion with Hardrada. Tostig and Hardrada defeated the forces of the Earls Edwin and Morcar at the Battle of Fulford Gate on 20 September 1066, but they were themselves defeated and killed by King Harold at Stamford Bridge on 25th September. It was then left to Harold to make the long journey back to the south coast to face Duke William of Normandy in his invasion, which of course led to the Battle of Hastings, which as we know does feature very prominently in the Biotastry. Anyway, back to Tom to offer a bit more detail about why the Hardrada Tostig story doesn't make it into the tapestry. I think there are multiple possibilities. Um, one is that whenever you, you tell a story, you, you select what to put in and what to leave out. And the emphasis is obviously on, on Harold and William, so, so that has to be in focus. And other characters can distract from that, so there may be a simple explanation for their mission. Uh, another possibility is that um, whoever designed this tapestry didn't want to draw attention to the fact that William wasn't the only claimant to the throne, that there were you know, other other contenders in the running too. Um, Harold Hardrada potentially, Tosti potentially, Edgar Eth- Etheling certainly. Uh, so there may be political motives, there may be more banal motives, which is to do with storytelling. Hmm. And uh, when you think about the audience, I mean, we've talked in previous episodes that the audience to this might well have been quite a a militaristic uh, knightly audience of men who like to see battles. So it's interesting, uh, Emily, that we don't get these depictions of of the battles of Fulford Gate and Stamford Bridge, which happened, you know, uh, as Tom said, uh, a few weeks prior to the the big set piece Battle of Hastings. Um, You would have thought that perhaps um, the audience might have have quite enjoyed uh, seeing a bit more of that. Uh, that military stuff. Um, so what's your take on on why they're not uh, included? Well, I think one of the reasons is the tapestry is not uh, an account of Harold's reign. And these are things that happen in Harold's reign. It misses out sort of the preparations of Harold's army. Um, and it doesn't sort of think about things like the gathering of troops down on the southern coast. Um, we get very little context of actually what's happening in the months of Harold's reign. He is named as king on the tapestry, but we don't see him ruling really. We see him being crowned, or at least in this kind of handing over of the crown, his coronation. Um, and then we see him uh, in battle at his death. Um, it's not an account of his reign. Um, So I think focusing on events like Stamford Bridge in particular would have drawn attention to his military successes. I mean, obviously, we get the sort of prequel to his reign. We see him very clearly involved in the Poitou um, incident uh, and in the Breton campaign. Um, And that is the one point where he comes to the fore, sort of in that bit before 1066. But we don't see him as a ruling king. Um, And I think... The other thing that I think is missing that's perhaps more interesting as to why is the fact that it focuses so much on the Norman preparations, but actually doesn't really include very much information about that. So we don't see, for example, the ships moving up the coast from uh, from Dives to St. Valery. We don't see the procession of the saints' relics at St. Valery, which was an important event that uh, some of the other sources after the conquest uh, drew attention to. And that's perhaps more interesting because we get that lengthy description of shipbuilding and lengthy uh, sort of focus on what's happening with uh, the Norman and the French troops at that point. But we don't get certain of these aspects that are focused on in some of the other sources. And why, why do you imagine that is the case? Do you, do you have a, a view on why it's not uh, not there? Well, possibly uh, the fact that um, actually that 
trip up the coast ended up in uh, a bit of a shipwreck. Uh, so that's not exactly a key event you want to draw attention to. Um, that may not have looked favourably in terms of sort of divine blessing on the conquest in itself. Um, and also, I don't know, but uh, the person who designed the tapestry clearly loved ships. So they wanted to focus on the building process um, and perhaps were less keen to kind of uh, place these in a specific uh, location moving up the coast. I don't know. <laughs> That's a, that's a good point about their love of ships. We do see a lot of ships in the tapestry. That is that is undeniably true. A lot of ships and a lot of horses. Um, Michael, Emily made a, an interesting point just there that um, if they had shown, if the designer had shown uh, the Battle of Stamford Bridge, then that would have kind of added to uh, that uh, that legend that's kind of building up of Harold being a worthy military figure, someone who's uh, who's good in, in, in war. But I suppose on the flip side of that, if they had shown... Uh, that battle then that would be after Harold had um, in the in the Norman uh, story perjured himself um, and uh, and uh, and and taken the crown the, the crown unfairly. So I suppose then it wouldn't have uh, fitted that narrative of building Harold up. By that point, we need to see him being knocked down. Is that is that right? Whereas, yeah, like you say, there's a lot of sort of spinning that could be done on interpreting this kind of story, can't there? I mean, there's there's various sort of aspects to it. You know, it depends on how you come to it. And as we've talked before in a kind of previous one of these podcasts, I mean, the tapestry seems to sort of tie this, uh, walk this tightrope, um, this balancing act between giving enough information, but not actually telling you what to think sometimes. Um, I think it's quite interesting with um, what Emily was saying about the kind of um, uh, the invasion fleet and the preparations, because actually, I mean, people the Norman sources, you know, William of Poitiers, go into quite a lot of detail about that. So it's quite interesting that Norman accounts do talk about the kind of loss of life, the disaster that the, the crossing was initially, um, until it kind of got re-kind of scheduled, if you like. Um, so that's kind of interesting, I think, the Norman sources talk about that, and then the tapestry doesn't. So I kind of think sometimes that might suggest that, or to me it suggests that the tapestry's message is kind of slightly different to that. And it gives, again, it kind of comes back to this, that you talked about with this sort of binary clash and making it a straightforward um, conversation, if you like, between the claims of of William against uh, against those those of Harold. Certainly, the case that Stamford Bridge, um, in particular, makes um, Harold um, look particularly impressive. I mean, no one can doubt that that was a pretty uh, impressive military victory for for him. Um, especially after the disaster, I suppose, of Fulford Gate, where he relied on his locals to do the job and they just didn't manage it. But sort of going back to something that Tom kind of mentioned, which I think is really interesting as well, is about Edward the Confessor as a sort of king in this, because um, kind of made me think really, sometimes, I mean, and I guess Tom will, he might shout down on me for this, saying this, but um, I sometimes see Edward the Confessor as very much a sort of Southern king in in many ways. You know, he's kind of got a lot, a lot better control, it seems to me on the, the southern part of the kingdom. And the further you go north, he becomes a lot more dependent on other sorts of individuals. And of course, you know, Tostig's uh, rule in Northumbria was a bit of a disaster, and hence, which opened this sort of gate for this um, Norwegian invasion. So um, it is quite a complex picture, but I think from the tapestry's perspective, they know, obviously, Harold has become king. They don't you know question that in any sort of way in the tapestry narrative. It's fairly clear to be seen. Um, and yeah, the, his his next problem was dealing with William, and so it is presented essentially as an as a, a conflict between those two people, ignoring most other people. Is that is that right, Tom? Is is uh, is it basically a, a tapestry of southern England, uh, which is why <laughs> we don't see Hardrada and uh, and all the uh, interesting stuff that happens uh, in the north. 
Well, that was the uh, the argument I was I was making that we're seeing here probably a Breton perspective, a south the Ch- south of the Channel perspective, and maybe not much knowledge of w- what happened uh, up north. Um, Edward doesn't go up north in his reign, as far as we know. I say I say up north, I mean as as, as far south as York. He doesn't even go up to up to somewhere like York. Um, Harold does. One of the first things that Harold does in his reign, of course, is, is go up to York. But that's because he faces um, uh, unrest. It seems in 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 Northumbria, whereas Edward doesn't. Um, not not for many years until, of course, the Great Rebellion of 1065, and that's largely because Tosti, who's very close to Edward, is trying to impose southern systems of government and probably taxation uh, on, on the Northumbrians by that point. Um, so, although Edward stays in the south, uh, he has the he has the north in in what seemed to be safe hands for for a long period until the very end of the reign. Harold starts his reign um, with a lot of trouble in the north and feels the need to go up there himself in person, uh, which I think is interesting in itself. But as Emily says, this isn't really um, a tapestry about Harold's reign. It's not Harold's story in that sense. Uh, Harold is is a player in, um, in, in I think, what's more William's story. Um. Um, I think there's also another absent context, obviously, is the Scandinavian context is entirely absent. Um, and that's, you know, again, what that would fit in with what Tom says. It, they're just not really that concerned with what's going on up there at the point that the tapestry is being made. They perhaps weren't aware, but it's also perhaps a a dangerous link to make to kind of look back to um, Harold Hadrada, which links you back to this kind of past of Knut and Hartha Knut. Um, and you're getting there into kind of murky waters of recalling an earlier conquest and the fact that the throne of England perhaps is is claimable through conquest in another way. Um, and you don't necessarily want to draw connections between uh, William and earlier conquerors. We should stop and linger a second here. Emily has just invited us to consider the longer history of what's happened through the 11th century. She cited Harold Hardrada, who, as I've already mentioned, led a failed invasion attempt with Tosti from the north in 1066. The Scandinavian perspective goes back further than this, though. There had been Viking raiding and settlement in Britain for several centuries prior to this point. And in 1016, another Scandinavian invader, the Danish King Knut, had seized the throne of England from King Athelred the Unready. Athelred, who was father to Edward the Confessor, died in 1016, and his son Edmund Ironside briefly ruled jointly with Knut. When Edmund also died at the end of 1016, Knut ruled solely over England until 1035, whereupon where he was followed by his sons Harold Harefoot and Knut. It was only on Knut's death in 1042 that Edward the Confessor was able to take the throne. It's notable to mention here that the short-lived king, Edmund Ironside, had a son, Edward, who went into exile after his father's death. And this Edward the Exile also had a son, called Edgar, who Emily has mentioned earlier, and who we come back to a bit later on, so keep an eye out for him. Now, before Michael takes up the story, I should explain that he's about to mention a figure called Elfgiver, who we talked about at the end of episode three of this series. We've not properly introduced to though. So let me do that. There is a scene in the tapestry in the first half of the action, immediately after Earl Harold and Duke William have what looks like a heated meeting in William's palace in Normandy. The Elfgiver scene has been much discussed by tapestry scholars because it's so hard to understand what it's all about. It's captioned with the words, where a clerk and Elfgiver. And the lack of a verb kind of suggests it should have an ellipsis after it to tell us more. It definitely feels like there's a dot, 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 something happened. The scene shows a woman seemingly hovering slightly above the ground and between two curious pillars topped with beastly heads. 
A churchman, clearly shown with a tonsured head, is thrusting his arm behind one of those pillars with the palm of his hand touching or hitting the woman's face. Beneath this scene, in the lower margin, is a man mirroring the posture of the cleric, yet with a notable absence of clothing and his genitals prominently on show. This naked man follows another naked man in the lower margin who appears to be doing some sort of woodwork in the nude. This has all led to a lot of theorising and speculation as to who Elfgiver was and what this is all about. Michael is going to mention a couple of candidates, Emma of Normandy, who was Queen of England at the start of the 11th century and who was wife to both King Ethelred the Unready and the aforementioned King Canute, and also mother to King Edward the Confessor. Confusingly, Emma was also known as Elfgifu. Michael also mentions Elfgifu of Northampton, who was the first wife of King Canute. All a bit confusing, but you will cope. Anyway, back to the conversation. Going back to this sort of Lady Elfgiva, I mean, it sort of depends what you think of her, isn't it, in a way? Because um, some people sort of do think that she is um, the Scandinavian story. Um, You know, she's hovering there, kind of reminding people that there is a sort of background um, here, you know, that she could either be um, Emma of Normandy um, or she could be um, um, Elfgiva of Northampton. Um, These kind of various people who are involved obviously with this really complicated and I think I think that's one thing we all sometimes forget well we don't forget but we know it's there but it, it can be forgotten is about how complicated these sort of dynastic links are between all of these different families across um you know northern and 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 kind of northwest Europe particularly at this sort of time it's so interrelated and as as, as sort of has been inferred I mean it's quite possible for um anyone to sort of make a claim to the kingdom it's just whether you're going to be able to take it um I think it's been said by a lot of people really that 1066 kind of completely overshadows um 1016 and and what happened before I mean if 1066 hadn't happened we'd all be talking about 1016 or 1014 whatever you like um as being the most important um event um in the 11th century but you know it kind of gets washed away really by uh, the Norman conquest it, it seems like we're going to have to do Elfgiver. So, Tom, um, you, you want to say something, but is, is Elfgiver, as, as Michael said, is that is that our hook into uh, into the political context of the 11th century? I don't have a clue who Elfgiver is. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, I really don't. She's one of these intriguing figures on the tapestry who obviously meant something to the audience, uh, and that's, it, that's intriguing in itself. We've got all sorts of little characters in there. We've got Turold, we've got Wadard, we've got Vital. Uh, we've been able to identify some of those. I'm not convinced that we have an identification for uh, Alf Eva. And that makes it absolutely fascinating that she's there. I think she's one of three women pictured on the tapestry. Yeah, and um, she's the only one named as well, just going to jump in there and say that. So yeah. the fact that her name appears singularly of all of the women, and there aren't very many on there, but that's important. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, I think I think we can be clear that she is there as an object of sexual desire. Um, but beyond that, uh, what the story is, um, I don't know. So so whether she takes us out of out of, out of the time of the tapestry again I, I i don't know if she does she's the only figure on there who does and i suspect that she probably is contemporary with the events and there's some little side story there that, we, that we're unaware of i think i'm convinced with alf giver um by catherine karkov's argument that actually the three women who appear in the main narrative appear at points of political disruption and they're used to uh, at least reflect on power dynamics and that is not my argument that is catherine karkov's and i think i'm definitely convinced by that there is something more to the appearance of each of these women and it's one of these 
you know, the, the suggestion has been put that Alpha Viva is there as an in-joke that we don't understand from our uh, perspective many centuries later. Um, and whatever she's doing there, she's clearly understood by a certain audience that would be viewing uh, that, perhaps not everyone. Um, but I think it is clearly a commentary on um, some form of power dynamics um, and uh, political disruption. And so so that argument um, that Catherine Cockles uh, is making is, is uh, that these women kind of stop you in your tracks a bit and make you think that, you know, this, this is a moment you need to reflect on and uh, and try and understand whatever's happening in the tapestry at that point. Yeah, and one of the other women, obviously, that appears and isn't isn't named, quite interestingly, is um, most likely Queen Edith at Edward's deathbed. And that's another point of political disruption. After the conquest, this is a key point, you know, was, was uh, did Harold swear an oath? Uh, was there a deathbed bequest? Who was the oath to? Uh, to what extent was Edgar Etheling involved in that context? Um, all of these can be questions that can be asked about the deathbed scene and the way in which the tapestry portrays it is very ambiguous, but Edith is there and is clearly an important part of that. And of course, it could be perhaps a hint that um, uh, their marriage did not bear a son and that perhaps allowed uh, people like Harold to take advantage of a situation. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the, the role and place of women in the tapestry in a second, if, if, uh, if we can. But Tom, I, I, I stopped you. You were going to make a point and then I uh, made you a pine on Elfgiva. But w- did you have something you wanted to say about the sort of the, the uh, political background uh, uh, in the tapestry? Well, the point I was going to make related to the earlier conversation about 1016 being dissolved by 1066. And I, I, I wanted to add really that 1016 was dissolved by Edward the Confessor's accession in 1042. Knut's dynasty had died out by that point. And so really the hope of Knut establishing a line on the throne, um, you know, a house of his own, uh, a sort of Anglo-Danish dynasty, if you like, um, w- w- was over by the time um, Edward, Edward, Edward took the throne in 1042. So I, I, think, I think that's quite a long way in the, in the background for me, but I'm aware other people have different opinions. Edgar Effling's been mentioned a few times here as, as kind of the, the missing person in the in the story. But let's talk about Edgar. So Edgar was the, um, the, the, the you know, the, the person who was best placed to, to succeed Edward the Confessor in terms of uh, lineage. That's 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 a that's a true statement, isn't it? Well, I argue, of course, that he's Edgar's um, adopted son, and um, Barlow had made that same point in his 2002 biography of the Goblins, that, um, he, I quote, Edward probably adopted Edgar as his son, and he's paraded around as such and, and sort of held up as the prospective heir. And so he's he's a hot potato. You don't, you don't want to touch this. If you're, if you're one of the, um, the, the people creating these sources, you're creating the source, whether it's a tapestry or one of the chronicles, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, or the biography of Edward, you're creating it for the reason regime, whether that's Harold's regime or William's regime, you don't want to touch Edgar Etheling, you don't want to mention him, you want to erase his existence, uh, because he undermines the legitimacy of your candidates, you know, whether that be Harold or William. So Edgar is written out almost across the, the sources that we have, and we only get, get little glimpses of him almost by accident sometimes here and there. Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel, um, as we say in our book, Dave, that, um, you know, Edgar... Uh, is sort of written out of the story to make the tapestry a very simple one, a, a, a convers- you know, like we said before, a conversation between William and and Harold and William taking this kingdom by force. And and as we've talked about before, the Norman sources, you know, make play, don't they, of the the, the fact that 
that they see that Harold didn't have any legitimacy to to rule. Well, you know, if Edgar Etheling's kind of hovering about there, then that sort of doesn't really help William at all as well. So, you know, I'm kind of kind of with Tom on this pretty much is that, um, you know, there's this is all about um, the tapestry is all about not talking about Edgar in a funny sort of <laughs> way. It's a story that's um, kind of avoids him um, and. And, you know, as has been said, I mean, it is kind of interesting that he is sort of suppressed so much from the sources that I think it's, I mean, there's a long, I mean, Edgar's always been in the back of people's minds, I think it's probably fair to say, who have studied this sort of period of time. But I think it's only relatively recently that he's been taken, well, when I say relatively recently, maybe in the last 20 years, but he's been taken relatively recently as, as I mean, most scholars of the period now sort of recognise that he had a legitimacy and um, the question is, why didn't that sort of happen in a way? You know, why was it the case that the Witten um, kind of overlooked um, Edgar at that moment in, in time? And I guess, you know, what we've said, and uh, it'd be interesting to see what the others think about this as well, is that, you know, maybe there wasn't something that was quite right for his, it wasn't quite his time in terms of his experience, um, his age, which I don't think is necessarily a limitation at all. Um Maybe there was other aspects, or maybe Harold was just so powerful that he was able to to make this sort of happen. I mean, that's I think for me is the big question: is is how did Edgar not become king? Actually, um, although we have to recognise, of course, it isn't about um, primogeniture at this sort of time. It's about who had the best um, sort of standing in terms of the, the the kind of leading men of the country. We should we've, we've we've dropped Edgar in here, and and uh, for listeners who aren't familiar with him, we ought to just say who he was. Emily, you're you're an expert on on child kings and kingship. You've studied this. Do you want to? Would you be able to summarise Ed, Edgar's story as to as to how he where he fits into into the situation? Yeah, so Edgar Etheling is uh, the grandson of Edmund Ironside, um, who did rule England. So he's a grandson of a, a reigning king of England uh, for a few months. Um, and uh, he has spent most of his life in exile because his father was exiled from the kingdom, um, probably in uh, at the Kievan court in Kievan Rus, uh, possibly in Hungary for a bit of his childhood as well. He then arrives back uh, probably in around 1057, either with his father, who's recalled from exile uh, by Edward, um, or possibly shortly afterwards. And it's very clear that he's accompanying um He's accompanying Queen Edith and uh, King Edward as they itinerate around the country. Um, he's addressed as Etheling, throneworthy. Um, it's very clear that he is being prepared to be heir. Um, and there are some interesting uh, representations of what was happening around the point of uh, the final year or so of uh, Edward's reign in terms of oaths that might have been sworn to uh, to Edward to perhaps uh, put Edgar on the throne after Edward's death. Um, and that comes from sort of uh, a, uh, a source over um, from the Monastery of Saint-Riquier uh, in northern France uh, and a monk, Harriolf, who's writing in around the 1080s, although it may have been based on an earlier source um, that's written very shortly after the conquest, possibly around sort of late 1060s. Um, so there's some, some interesting evidence um, that suggests that Harold did basically took advantage of a situation in which he could claim power. Um, he did so with the consult consultation of the leading men of the Witan, um, and he got them on side uh, to, to be crowned. Um, but yeah, it's very clear that the legitimate claim at that point was Edgar Etheling's. 
and uh, Edgar would have been a boy at this time. Though, when when he came back to England, how old were he being? What, what are we saying? Yeah, he's possibly as young as ten or eleven at most, fourteen, fifteen. We have a very dubious reference that he's around the same age as William, um, the Conqueror's son, Robert Curthose. Um, but again, we don't actually have a definite birth date for Robert Curthose, and um, the term that the Latin sources use suggest within the same peer group, but that doesn't necessarily pin him to being exactly the same age. Um, so it, it's possibly sort of around between 10, 11 and 14 or 15. Um, and that's not an unusual age to succeed to a throne at that point. Um, there are rulers of France and uh, the German realm at that very moment in time who've succeeded as much, much younger in the German case, a five-year-old boy, Henry IV succeeded to the German throne in 1056. Um, Yeah, so it would not have been unusual. And we can remember that William himself succeeded to his dukedom uh, as a boy of about seven or eight as well. So um, thanks, Emily. So Tom, in in terms of the the threat that Edgar posed to the contenders, William and Harold, after the death of Edward the Confessor, how how realistic a threat was he? I mean, it must have been realistic for him to have been excluded from the from the biotapestry if we're taking that view that he's taken out because it was politically not expedient for him to be there. And I think you, you might have some interesting lines on, on his relationship to Harold Hardrada as well and, and how that might have fitted into the story. Yes, well, up, up to this point, every claimant of the English throne has been of the royal blood, either of the bloodline of Kerduk going all the way back to the 6th century through the House of Wessex or the Danish bloodline, uh, the royal bloodline of Sven Forkbeard and Knut. Um, Harold's um, usurpation of the throne in 1066 is absolutely unprecedented in that Harold is not of royal blood. Uh, And so that instantly um, puts a question mark over his legitimacy. Uh, We know um, that as soon as Harold took the throne, uh, multiple foreign powers, both to the north and south, decided that they weren't going to recognise him. And they either ganged up to form armies which would go and invade his kingdom or assisted others who were doing so. So Harold has a major legitimacy problem from the start. If you think of other usurpers at his such as uh, Richard III, um, Henry Tudor, they both face um, attempts by by sort of by claimants to come and come and take the throne, and they they they're made to feel very insecure by by people like Perkin Warbeck. I mean, um, as Tom Penn wrote in his biography of uh, Henry VII, Henry VII gets absolutely paranoid about these pretenders to the throne. Um, uh, Harold has has a real cause for concern because uh, there is a legitimate contender for the throne. Edgar Etheling is the only one who has the legal title allowing him to. To, uh, ha- allowing him to succeed to the throne, which is the title a- a- um, Emily mentioned, uh, Etheling. And he's very well connected. Um, the best genealogical research today suggests that Harold Hardrada is his uncle, uh, in that Harold Hardrada married his aunt, Elizabetha. Um, his other aunt, Anna, is married to uh, Anna Kiev, uh, was married to the former king of France and is, is the mother of the, um, the young king of France. Um, so he, he, has, um, he has royal kindred uh, to the north and south of England, who presumably would rather have him on the throne than, than Harold. And that may go some way to, to explaining uh, the, the invasions we see uh, manifesting from, from Norway and, and you know, the, the, the large troops which are gathering in, in France to, uh, to invade England too. I think uh, partly because of the Bayeux Tapestry, we've fallen into the habit of thinking about 1066 as though it's a, a struggle between Harold and William, whereas in fact both of them were illegitimate usurpers who had no, no blood claim to the throne at all. I'm just going to sort of going back to this point of who's missing from the tapestry. It's also interesting that Archbishop Yeldred is entirely missing. We we get Stigand named um, Archbishop of Canterbury, but we don't get the Archbishop of York at that point. And there's a possible indication there that he's one of the ones who is perhaps most strongly behind Edgar Etheling 
in London um, after the Battle of Hastings. Uh, we also obviously don't get the Earls Edwin and Morker appearing on the tapestry either. Um, so they're other people who are possibly in London with Edgar. So none of these people who are perhaps on the leading support uh, support team behind Edgar Etheling actually end up on the tapestry as it survives. Um, yeah. But they're also, so, of course, nor- northerners. They're all northerners, aren't they? And it's, it's, exactly, it's, it's m- yeah. more, more northerners being left out. <laughs> so it's exclusion of northerners, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> We're back round again then to, to what happened in London um, after the uh, after the victory of William the Conqueror. And it takes us back to that point you, you made at the start, Emily, that uh, that we missed this this um, possible um, support for, for Edgar in London um, uh, after, after William had uh, defeated Harold. But it's very interesting that we don't see that London element um, after the after the Battle of Hastings, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I suppose, uh, like Emily said, it's fairly obvious why we don't show it because it's, it's not really in the spirit of the story that the tapestry designer sort of uh, wants to tell, really. I'm not surprised that this kind of, um, you know, London sort of declaring for him is, is not depicted. I still kind of rattle about this idea about what actually did happen um, immediately after the death of, of Edward the Confessor. And I know we talked about it a little bit last time, in terms of the the death of Edward the Confessor and this kind of the touching of hands that's shown that kind of reflects what's found in the Vita Edwardi Regis, where it's it sort of suggests that um, that uh, with, that uh, Edward um, well it sort of it sort of puts the kingdom into Harold's care, and I mean we can read these words in in lots of different ways, and obviously it's not helped by the fact that it's translated from Latin into English, and then we use the words that we're sort of familiar with, but. I've always kind of liked the idea, whether there's any proof in this, that that um, that Harold was sort of chosen as the person to kind of take care of the kingdom whilst this young boy, um, you know, became a bit more of age. What do you think, Tom? Is Michael right there? No, he's absolutely right. And I used I used the, the parallel of Richard III earlier. And of course, Richard III is, is made Lord Protector um, in the first instance for, for the young princes before they disappear. And uh, we might think of Harold as an 11th century equivalent to that in that, that Edward is potentially nominating Harold as a guardian to look after Edgar until Edgar comes of age, uh, when Harold should cede, cede the kingdom to Edgar without impediment, according to Harold of St. Riquier, uh, the, the sort of contemporary writer who, who brings in a sort of neutral uh, perspective on this from Ponture. Um What Harold then tells us is that um, Harold uh, broke his oath to to Edgar to look after, uh, sorry, to Edward to look after Edgar and drove Edgar out of the kingdom and took the crown for himself. Um, and he might well have done that uh, for good reasons because it was a very precarious position to be the protector of a young prince who might soon come of age and he might have his own opinions about things and he might not want a protector uh, looking over his shoulder and overshadowing him all the time. Time for one more quick pause. Edgar Affling is, in my mind at least, the missing man in the tapestry and hopefully the conversation above has shown why that was the case and perhaps pointed up the fact that the reason that Edgar isn't as well known today as he might be given how significant a player he appears to have been in the succession crisis that followed the death of Edward the Confessor, is precisely because he's written out of the biotapestry, which, as we've talked about throughout this series, has come to be such a dominant force in public understanding of the conquest, and perhaps even medieval history more broadly, because of its very survival as an artefact and the singular appeal of its simple and direct imagery. Edgar is not the only person who doesn't make an appearance in the tapestry who might have done that. So let's go back to the discussion to talk about women and their general absence in the embroidery. 
So we've just had a, a conversation there for about half an hour talking about the, the political situation uh, in 1066 and in the 11th century. Um, and it's been almost entirely men that we've talked about. Emily mentioned um, a, a couple of women earlier on, but um, it's it's interesting that it is so male-dominated there, whereas you, your, your work, Emily, some of your research does inform us that actually women were, were political players and were important in, in the story at the time. So um, what are we missing and, and why do you think we're missing that? Yeah, well, I think the tapestry as it currently stands is a very, uh, it's not only a very male-dominated uh, visual uh, art form, it's also a very militarily active, uh, so youngish men, militarily capable young men, um, they dominate the tapestry overall. So it's a very homosocial environment. You see court scenes, you see dining scenes, but you don't see women sort of as part of the audiences for those. Um, you see three uh, women who we've talked about, uh, Edith, um, Elf Giva, and the third one is a woman fleeing from a burning house, uh, holding the hand of her young child. And she's um, unnamed. We don't know. And we she's don't know unnamed. She's we we don't know who she was, but to me at least, um, she represents sort of the the unnamed women and children who would have been affected by conquest and warfare. And I think there's, it's very tempting to see um, this as a very political and uh, militarily focused tapestry, and that's one side of warfare and conquest. The other side is obviously what's happening uh, to the women who are left behind when men are off at battle. Um, Borgi of Boigoy is actually a really interesting source to bring in here because he tells us of this scene on the Norman coast as the as the, the northern French forces are leaving for England, he describes mothers and uh, wives weeping for the men as they go off to battle. Um, but that's something you don't see on the tapestry. So there are a lot of unnamed women uh, who could have been brought into the story, but obviously that wasn't part of the purpose um, or perhaps the intended audience. Um, but there is a very important, I think, aspect there that we haven't mentioned, which is that the anonymity of the women who are probably making this tapestry. Um, that's a really important point, I think, to bring in there. Um, this tapestry is the whole product of women's work as well. Um, so moving us away, perhaps, from a, a political narrative to think about the sort of social history underpinning that uh, the tapestry, uh, that's women, almost certainly religious uh, women, uh, possibly nuns, um, in the Kent Canterbury region has been one suggestion, um, who were actually responsible for uh, the embroidery that underpins all of this so it's thanks to them we have this so i should yeah. say it's thanks to women we even have this as a source <laughs> other women are shown in, in the tapestry in the, in the borders in the margins but they're, they're shown often in quite sexualized ways so how does that um uh, how do you imagine that would have fitted in with the with potentially nuns um being being involved in the embroidery yeah, the sexualized scenes are an interesting one. Um, there's a lovely story about, um, to take us into a later context, uh, there's a group of women who were sort of recreating the tapestry. I think it was in the 19th century. Um, and the images they gave them actually uh, redacted uh, elements of the nude scenes so that uh, they didn't have to, uh, these women weren't sort of exposed to these uh, male genitalia and uh, and naked women. But anyway, that's that's by the by. Um, so the, the there are, I think it's three nude women depicted in the borders um and they 
possibly were making a commentary on some of the scenes that were going on. So the fact that there's a nude man underneath the Elf Gviva um, scene has usually been indicated that that is something of a sexual nature. Um, so we can perhaps suggest that some of the other appearances of, of nude women um, would have been there. But I don't think we should necessarily assume that the nuns were um, unfamiliar with the female body um, or the fact that this was um, perhaps a, a, a too raunchy for nuns to embroider. Um, these are scenes that you might have seen also on uh, sort of other artwork um, and other aspects of architecture within ecclesiastical settings as well as within secular. So I don't think that would have been um, something that was perhaps considered too, uh, too dangerous for them to, uh, yeah... I'm not really sure I'd use the word nuns for the embroiderers. We don't know really who they are. They're, they're women, um, probably. But, you know, from what sort of background, it's, it's sort of difficult to say. Um, it could be anything, of course. Um, but one thing I suppose is quite interesting, and I think in some ways, you know, in relation to the lack of women in the tapestry, is that in... And if we take the line that the tapestry is almost certainly borrowed from illuminated manuscripts, or parts of it are... Um, and we kind of look at some of the, the, the likely drawings, like the old English Hexatute, Junius Eleven, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, they are absolutely full of women, and the stories that they're borrowing from are full of women. Obviously, like biblical stories. Um, so I find that is even more interesting. Actually, is that you know you've got these role models that they could have borrowed from in terms of the narratives that are full of women doing quite important things, you know, within the biblical context. I know it's mostly Old Testament um, and, you know, some of those stories, I think I've just been going back through some of them and I'm quite, they're quite shocking actually in, a, in, a, in a many ways um, to a modern audience, a lot of these um, stories that, of the goings on in the Old Testament. But nonetheless, um, the, the tapestry designer is almost certainly borrowing from manuscripts that have loads and loads of women doing important things in these stories and then they don't appear um, in, in the Bayer tapestry. So it makes them even more kind of absent, I think, is, is the point I was trying to make. And to give to give one example of that, um, some of the models of the horses, for example, tumbling, are, fra- are, are, are copying um, images from um, Psychomachia, which is a, a fourth century text by Prudentius, which was uh, which is kept at Canterbury. In this work, uh, you have women uh, personified as as the virtues battling other women who are personified as the vices. So you see lots of images of women fighting women, and those images of women fighting women have been borrowed uh, to create fight scenes for men, uh, and the women have been raised from them. Hmm. Yeah, just jumping off Michael's point there as well, I mean, there would be surely an absolute crucial moment to have brought a woman in would be Queen Matilda of Flanders, or Matilda of Flanders as as she was before her coronation. Um, And you see that point where it actually refers in the inscription to William crossing in this large ship. Um, Well, that ship we know was the Moro, which was financed by uh, Matilda of Flanders. So that would have been an absolutely crucial point to bring in, surely, um, a woman who is very very obvious from her lack in the tapestry, I think. Uh, Matilda being uh, William's queen. Um, it's yeah. um, um, So it does all sort of point to it being a pretty deliberate uh, omission to, to not include uh, women in the tapestry. Well, I think it's important to put it in, in a wider context of 11th century um, sources. Uh, the 11th century is quite unusual because we, we have two important sources commissioned by queens. We have the so-called encomium of Queen Emma, which is a work commissioned by Knut's Queen Emma to celebrate her dynasty, circa 1041. And we have the life of King Edward, uh, commissioned by Queen Edith, uh, circa 1065. Um, and 
both of these works, although they are commissioned by women, by queens, and have a very important female input, they're not about women. They're about celebrating the glory of women through the menfolk. It's as though the glory of women was vicarious. It was reflected through the men. And that's very much the tenor, I think, in which we have to take these accounts. Um, the Bayeux Tapestry is doing something slightly different. But even when we have sources with women behind them, the women aren't putting themselves centre. They're wanting to put their their men centre, their, their, their dynastic achievements of their, their, their fathers and their husbands and their children centre. I think that tells us something very important about how that society operates. Mm. And I think that's, sorry to interject, but I think that is a, a really interesting thing for us, isn't it? Because obviously it's sometimes, and we do this all the time, you know, we have our kind of modern sort of value judgments and we want to see them somehow in the past. We think they should do this and we think they should do that. Um, and, you know, as we talked about in the last episode, <clears throat> you know, a king had the attributes of a king um, sort of in the 11th century, uh, are very different to a political leader nowadays, although sometimes like people like to show the analogies between the two. But um, it is a completely different world in, a, in many ways to the one that we sort of live in now. And, and though we've kind of tried to like some of these characters, um, most of them are probably quite ruthless people because they live in quite ruthless periods, actually. Even the women, I'd say, as well. I mean, you know, people like Queen Emma, gosh, I mean, she's a nightmare, isn't she? <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, they're, they're pretty tough people. I think there's also um, uh, another woman sort of missing from the tapestry um, who does appear quite prominently in the 1066 story elsewhere, and that would be Geetha, uh, Harold's mum, who ends up in Exeter after the conquest and is clearly part of the city holding out against uh, William at that point. So that's that's another important kind of political moment where you see uh, women being important um, within a political context, but the, 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 the tapestry obviously doesn't go as far as 1068, so it doesn't get to that point. It's interesting, though, if you look at the um, the Vita Edwardi, the, the biography of Edward, that Geetha is also omitted um, there. She, she's mentioned mm-hmm. uh, on two occasions when the Godwins flee into exile, first of all in 1051 when Godwin flees into exile, taking Geetha, his wife, with him. Then in 1065 when Tosti, her son, flees into exile, taking Geetha, uh, again, his wife, uh, with him. But she's she's afforded no place in, in the story, which I think is very interesting because it's probably the case that Edith, who is the central woman in that story, doesn't want any uh, attention detracting from her possibly partly for the reason that Geetha was enormously fertile. She had lots and lots of children, and, and Edith didn't, of course. And this is one of the, the, the clouds that's hanging over uh, Edith, um, Edward's queen, Harold's sister. She has no children. Um, so Geetha is almost you know, erased from, from the biography there as well. But she could have also appeared at the battle scene or immediately afterwards where she's trying to negotiate for uh, potentially for uh, with William to recover Harold's body. Um, it's William of Poitiers, I think, who says that uh, William turned her down. Um, but, uh, yeah, she tries to, to buy her son's body back uh, so she can give him uh, a fitting burial. Yeah, supposedly she offers his weight in gold, according to uh, one of those accounts. Um we've covered sort of uh, higher politics and uh, and, the, and the context quite a lot now. I'd just like to spend uh, five minutes uh, as we wrap up just to talk about um, what the tapestry tells us or doesn't about everyday life in the 11th century, the social history. So if you were writing a, a novel today about the, the story of the, of the Norman conquest, you might include some colour about what was going on in the background and, you know, describe some churches and things like that. Um, we see some small elements of that sort of thing. We see some buildings and some architecture. And Michael talked about the agricultural scenes that are shown uh, in the borders a bit. 
we see a lot of shipbuilding, as, as Emily talks about, but that's kind of within the military context, isn't it? It doesn't give us that much more colour about the 11th century, does it? Or, or, or am I missing something obvious? Tom, is, is the Biotapestry an excellent source for social history, do you think? Uh, I could say something about religion, perhaps, which is one aspect of social history. Um, God, who's obviously all important and, and sort of sitting at the top of the cosmos in the 11th century, appears once in the Bayer Tapestry as the hand blessing Westminster uh, when Edward's funeral cortege is going in there, signifying that Edward is seen as a, as a holy individual and that his, his burial place is being blessed. But apart from that appearance, that sole appearance of the hand of God, uh, that whole uh, cosmos where you have God and the devil, saints and angels, uh, demons, uh, all those aspects of belief um, are, are missing. And, and, and it's easy to forget that these people subscribe to this this belief system where where there are all, all, all these all these gods and other beings um who are making these things happen you know i mean uh, a number of the uh, the people who comment on on the uh, on the Battle of Hastings and the fall of the English, uh, fall of Harold, I should say, um, uh, attribute that to God. Uh, so you know, so, so God has a role to play, but but God, but God is 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 largely largely missing. You've got a couple of fighting bishops in there, but that's about all. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Emily, what what do you think? Is it is it useful for social history for understanding the 11th century? Oh, I'm going to be a little bit controversial, I think, and say I think it's as useful for social history as it is for political history, and I leave that quite an open one. Um, I think we, we've exploited it quite, uh, or historians in general have exploited it quite a lot for political history, um, and it's it's perhaps only more recently that people have turned to it for uh, some of the social insights it can provide. It's obviously in itself, it's uh, an in many ways, a dubious source for, for doing that exactly. But I think it's uh, it can be quite telling. So one of my favourite scenes, um, perhaps inevitably from what I work on, is uh, the procession leading uh, the uh, the funeral cortege into uh, into um, Westminster. And uh, there are two bell ringers underneath this uh, scene. Now, what one suggestion is that they're very small because of perspective. Um, I, I perhaps propose another alternative and would, would lean towards the fact that they are small, in fact, because they are small people. They are children. Um, and there is a lot of work that's been done on children's participation in liturgy and liturgical processions, um, perhaps not as bell ringers, but as choir boys, uh, as people who are, are doing readings or chants. Um, so for me, this is a, a, a key point to perhaps think, well, a, uh, who are we? Who are we forgetting uh, when we think about a political context? Who are we forgetting within uh, uh, the sort of role of historical actors? And we're often not thinking about children, but here they are on a tapestry. Um, and I think on another, you could flip that, and you could also that can be a a point to start then thinking about the audience of the tapestry and perhaps children being a part of that. If it was being displayed in uh, um, in either a secular or ecclesiastical setting, um, almost certainly part of the audience would have been made up of children and they're often left out of who we think of as audience. Um, so it's, it's a a point perhaps to spark the imagination um, from thinking about other people who uh, who are not necessarily a part of the political context, um, but are definitely a part of the social history of uh, 11th century England. I'm just trying to think if there's any other children. There's the, the, the woman at the end is, is leading a child away from the burning house, yeah. isn't she? Yeah. And again, that would that kind of starts you thinking about the impact of conquest on children. Um, there's a possible, I mean, there's a small figure up a mast, um, potentially, you know, uh, could this be a small, uh, small boy who they've shoved up there? But he's part of um, he's part of a group of men traveling across uh, across uh, the channel. So um, hmm. maybe. Yeah. Um, hmm. Tom, 
Uh, I'm, in, I'm so interested in what Emily was saying about child audiences because I hadn't given much thought to that. But it, it, it did occur to me that uh, one of our key sources for these events of 1065, 1066 uh, is the Adma in Canterbury. And the Adma is an English monk born around about the year 1060 who writes an account of, of, of these events in the early 1100s. He would have been growing up in Canterbury in the 1060s, 1070s when the tapestry was there. And the account that he, the story that he tells does, does map rather closely onto the scenes in the tapestry. I mean, just to, to an extent where I thought when I was writing about this that he might have been influenced by the tapestry. And it may well be that he was one of these children who, who, who saw it uh, in situ in Canterbury uh, in the late 1060s or 1070s or, or whenever it sort of started to emerge, or was being told the stories um, that fed into it in that context. And we have to remember that, of course, these stories are also circulating orally and children are being told these stories. And children would have understood who some of these characters were and what was going on in ways that, that we, we today can't. Um, maybe he's one of Emily's bell ringers. Or, or maybe Edgar is, yes. I mean, who knows? <laughs> um, uh, Michael, uh, social history in the tapestry. I mean, a lot of the, the more bucolic scenes are based on uh, on uh, on manuscript illustrations from, from other sources, so not necessarily really telling us about what's happening on the ground in 1066 or 1070s, but, but of, a, of an earlier period. Yeah, so notwithstanding that fact, in some ways there are kind of quite a lot of snippets of information, though. So, I mean, obviously, if you take away what's clearly come from manuscripts and you're kind of left with the rest, if, if you like, um, there are kind of a lot of interesting images in the tapestry, which obviously people have, you know, talked about, all, you know, Tom and, and, um, and Emily have already talked about um, in, in some places. I mean, the obvious one, of course, is clothing. I mean, there's quite a lot of secular clothing depicted um, in the tapestry. Again, probably borrowed or similar to that you find in some of these late Anglo-Saxon manuscripts. But there are... Um, Snippets of information that kind of lend us to believe that maybe the embroiderers were kind of paying a bit more attention to what people were wearing. Maybe not. Maybe that's reading a little bit more into it. There's obviously the cooking and feasting scenes, again, borrowed from manuscripts, but elements of them, you know, seem to reflect, you know, how people may have ate and drink. And obviously people have played on the differences between the Norman feast scene and the English feast scene, where the English basically drink lots but don't eat much, and the Normans, it's a bit the other way around. Um, so I think there are kind of insights into social history. Um, I think one of the things that, that about the tapestry that we all know is because it's so colourful and because of the date of it, um, when you open these history books, you kind of see um, images from the tapestry that relate to events in the 11th century, the 12th century, the 13th century, the 14th century. I mean, you go on and on and on almost. Um, it's incredible that people kind of use it to illustrate the past, um, even now, when really it is pretty much borrowed um, from um, contemporary manuscripts, which again, you know, sometimes are relating, as you suggested, Dave, what was happening in the, say, the late 10th century, early 11th century, but they might actually fossilise things that were going on well before that as well. Okay, um, we've covered a, an awful lot of ground there, talked about all sorts of interesting things. We ought to, to wrap it up. Um, so I'm just wondering, I'm just going to throw it around everybody to uh, offer any concluding remarks or say anything that uh, haven't uh, given you a, an opportunity to say about what's missing from the tapestry. Tom, anything you'd like to, to throw in, in by way of conclusion? Uh, yes, I think ultimately what's missing from the tapestry, um, a proper explanation of what's going on, I think is what's missing. Uh, and when we use it as a source, we have to be very careful uh, to, to read it on its own terms and not to try to import meaning into it from the other sources that we have. Michael? Well, I think um, based on what Emily's been saying, I think it'd be quite nice if the tapestry had um, Edith was here 
no, 1066 over the top of the sort of deathbed scene, perhaps, just to kind of make it sure that it is her that we're talking about that's kind of weeping um, at the bottom of Edward's bed. And uh, thanks, and Emily? Um, I mean, I'm just going to end with one of my favourite scenes, which is, um, I think, perhaps links back into what you were saying with the uh, social history, um, is these men wading into the sea carrying their dogs is one of my favourite scenes. And you, you just, I think from that, you sort of think about the realistic portrayal of people actually having to climb on board boats and things, even if some of these are copied from manuscripts. It's it's a it's a visual insight that sparks at least a little bit of imagining back to um, what some of the realities of these uh, events might have been like. It is it is one of my favourite scenes. And I've got a dog and to, and to try and carry a dog whilst you're getting onto a ship would be um, some something of a feat, wouldn't it? Um, so, but no, it is a lovely scene, and it's uh, it is one of the most uh, what most visually appealing things I think of, of the uh, of the tapestry. Professor Tom License, Dr. Emily Ward, Professor Michael Lewis, thank you very much. We have now uh, we've now done what's missing in the bio tapestry. So uh, next time you look at it, think about what's not there as much as what is there. Thank you very much. So that's the end of part four of our uh, History Extra Unraveling the Bio Tapestry series. Thanks to Professor Tom License, Dr. Emily Ward, and Professor Michael Lewis. The fifth and final episode explores the legacy of the tapestry and its place in public history today. And for that, Professor Lewis will be joined by Professor Michael Wood and Dr. Janina Ramirez. Just a quick note that the book that Michael Lewis and I have written, The Story of the Bio Tapestry Unraveling the Norman Conquest, is published by Thames and Hudson in April 2021. And we've written a feature on what's missing from the bio tapestry, which obviously follows on from this discussion you've just listened to, in the March issue of BBC History magazine. Plus, of course, you'll find all manner of great tapestry content on our website, historyextra.com, including a piece about why women are at the heart of the Norman Conquest story. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman.